Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Well, let's continue in prayer. Our Father, if we are indeed gathered together in your name, in all truth, as your people, it is because of the infinite mercy and kindness that you have shown to us. And not just to us, but to your entire creation. Father, it should overwhelm us when we really consider and contemplate the vastness of your love, the power of your love, the effectual triumph of your love. Lord, we speak of you as our Father. We speak of our Sonship. And yet we really don't even begin to have a grasp of all that that entails and implies. All of the glory that is wrapped up in being sons in the Son. Of being heirs of all that Jesus has inherited. Father, I pray that you would even as we've been exhorted this morning, draw ever nearer, that we would truly rest in you, that we would be fully content and satisfied in you, but in a way that leaves us with a lack of contentment, because we long for the consummation. We long to see what you have begun be fully realized in ourselves, in your church, in your creation. As John said, it does not presently appear what we shall be, though even now we are sons of God, according to your love and your power. But it doesn't presently appear what it shall be. But in that day, we will see you as you are. We will be like you. We will know as we are fully known. And the joy and the desire and the longing that characterize us now will be fully gratified. Father, give us such a vision. Give us such a longing. Give us such a perspective and a perseverance in it. Life is hard. It's full of difficulty, it's full of sorrow, it's full of loss, it's full of suffering in all sorts of ways. But in your hand, these things are a part of your goodness in teaching us what it means to live as your children, to learn the true, submissive, humble, dependent qualities of sonship, the obedience of the children of God. Jesus was perfected through the things that he suffered, and so it is with us. And I pray that we would receive from your hands with gratitude, with humility, with all submission, and that we would thank you and that we would praise you and that we would do so with sincerity of heart, not seeking that you would do what we would have you to do, but that we would be fully conformed to the likeness of the one whose life we share in. That our God would be in that day all in all. And finally, the glory that you have sought even in doing this work of creation will be fully realized. Capture our hearts and minds, Father. 
cause us to see the glory of being your children. We ask these things in the name of Jesus for the sake of his glory in us, in your church, ultimately in the world. Amen. As we do this series through the Psalms, we're considering this theme of sonship because Israel's Psalms were uh, the heart of their liturgy. They were songs of worship that ultimately had as their premise Israel's sonship. Israel had been called, chosen by God's grace and God's purpose to be son of God for the sake of the world. And in that calling, they had an immeasurable privilege. We saw last time that the natural, we would hope the natural, certainly the appropriate response to this this privilege of sonship is praise and thanksgiving. And praise is really the very central theme throughout the Psalms. The Hebrew name for the Psalter is the Book of Praises. And so the Psalms are replete and and really saturated with the praises of God. But another dimension of this this sonship that Israel celebrated, that Israel extolled in its its psalms, again at the center of its worship, was this theme of communion with God. If Israel was son of God, if Israel had been taken out of the world by God, drawn up in God's own purpose and love in order to have him dwell in their midst and to accomplish his purposes in them and through them, then at the very center of their sonship was this amazing privilege of intimacy. And I think that's one of the things that is so easily lost on us. It's easy for us to do this thing called religion. It's easy for us to talk about this being called God that's out there somewhere in a place called heaven and And he's up there, and when we need something, we call out to him, and we expect him to come to our aid or meet our desires, whatever they would happen to be. He's a resource to be drawn on uh, in times of need. And I'm not saying that there's not a sense in which that's true. But it's very difficult, it's very foreign for us to actually live out moment by moment the intimacy that God has actually purposed and accomplished, has initiated, inaugurated in Christ. I in you, you in me. Just even to the extent that we think of God as out there, we don't understand really the intimacy of the sons of God. To the extent that we see ourselves living our lives, God being a resource to be drawn on, God loving us, God whatever, but in, in a kind of distant sort of way, we don't really understand what it is to be his children. The intimacy that God intends for people transcends anything that we've known in this life, anything that we could possibly experience in this life in terms of natural human relationships. Even the most intimate, close meeting of the mind's heart, marriage, falls far short of this intimacy that we have with our Father. Even the best parent-child relationship falls far short of what this intimacy is with God. And so this is another central theme in the Psalms. The absolute delight, the joy, and the longing associated with intimacy with God. So I'd like to use for our consideration this morning Psalm 84. If you want to turn there, uh, we will read that together. And then I'll draw out some general observations and some particular things to consider. The heading of this says, For the choir director on the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, even yearns for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. 
The bird also has found a house, even the swallow, a nest for herself where she may lay her young in, in, in and among your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives strength or grace and glory, favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Psalm 84 is a point of transition. It moves us from the Psalms of Asaph. Asaph was one of the chief singers that David appointed, and uh, he penned several Psalms, 73 through 83, I believe. And this is a transition into the second set of Psalms ascribed to the sons of Korah. This section includes 84, 85, 87, and 88. The first section of Psalms, the first group of Psalms associated with the sons of Korah is Psalm 42 and then 44 through 49. Korah, just a little bit of background on him, he, he, that name may be familiar to some of you. Korah was actually a Levite. Korah was a grandson of Koath. If you remember, God, uh, Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And God chose Levi to, and his descendants to be responsible for the ministration of the people on his behalf. The priests were drawn from the Levites, the people who took care of the tabernacle, the people who were responsible for moving it, setting it up managing all of the details of its administration. They were all Levites. And Levi had three sons, Gershom, Merari, and Koath. And each of them was assigned specific tasks associated with the tabernacle. Before there was a temple in Jerusalem, there was the tabernacle, which was the meeting place that God had Israel build uh, as a, a portable tent arrangement in the wilderness so that he would dwell in the midst of his people. From the very beginning, Israel's sonship meant that Yahweh dwelt in their midst. He was there with them. So Gershon was responsible for the fabrics, the coverings, the tent coverings, all of the, the, the soft goods, if you will, associated with the, the tabernacle furnishings. Handling them, transporting them, setting them up. Merari was responsible for the hardware, the poles, the, the boards, the various fittings on which the cloth structures, the tent structures were hung. Koath, in a sense, had the, as the third son, had in some sense maybe the most seemingly important role. Koath and his sons were responsible for the transporting of the holy articles. The altar, the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, the holy furnishings. And the way that the process worked is that Aaron and his sons were responsible for going into the sanctuary and covering all of the holy things in a proper way. And when they had done that work, only they could look at those holy things. When they had appropriately covered everything, then the Kohathites would take those things up and transport them. So Korah was a grandson 
of Kohath. He would have been a part of that family responsible for transporting the holy things of the sanctuary. And if you know from the book of Numbers in the wilderness, Kohath led a, re- or not Kohath, Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Essentially saying, you've gone too far. You're making too much of yourselves. You're distinguishing yourselves inappropriately. All the people are holy. All the people are the elect of God. And if you remember, that was when the ground opened up and swallowed. God said, I'll show you, you know, how this works. You despise the holy calling that you have and you seek to usurp the role that I've assigned to Moses and Aaron. So the ground swallowed up and and swallowed Korah and Dathan and and all those who were involved in this rebellion against Moses and Aaron. But God spared Korah's descendants, his sons, his family. And they went on to play a significant role. As Kohathites, they continued in that role of handling the things of the sanctuary. And as time went on, Uh, descendants of Korah, sons of Korah, became part of David's uh, entourage, David's faithful men. And when he became king, David assigned some of the sons of Korah to be doorkeepers at the sanctuary. This is before the temple was built. But when he moved the tent and the ark up to Jerusalem, David assigned some of the sons of Korah to be doorkeepers at the sanctuary and also to be singers, to be musicians and singers, just as was the case with Asaph, another one of those individuals. So that's why I think we end up having psalms that are associated with the sons of Korah. Because as musicians and singers, they also composed songs, just as Asaph himself did. That gives us a little bit of a sense of of how this is ascribed to the sons of Korah, and also, or the significance of that, and also why, or at least uh, reasonably why, This is so much focused on God's sanctuary. And even the statement of of, in this psalm of I'd rather stand at the threshold of God's sanctuary. It kind of has the implication of the doorkeeping role. Some of your versions may either say that I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. So it very much is suited to the role that these sons of Korah played in Israel's worship. As I said, the psalm itself focuses on God's sanctuary as the object of delight and the object of longing. Why the sanctuary? The issue isn't the building or the structure. The issue is the God who resides there. The longing for the sanctuary, the longing uh, to be and to come and to meet uh, at this place is because it's the dwelling of God. And this was very much a part of the, the uh, religious psychology of the ancient world. In the ancient world, it was believed that gods or divine powers would take up residence in a shrine or a temple constructed to them. Men would build a temple, a a place for a certain god or a certain deity, and then they assumed that that god would be resident or accessible in that place. And specifically, they would complete that work, often involving a sacrificial altar of some sort, but they would complete that structure by building a physical image that they believed represented that god or that deity. You see that in the gods of Egypt. There were ways that they represented these deities which were spirit beings, but they were represented in a physical form, sometimes a physical form that didn't look like any particular creature or a blending of creatures. But the point is is that a 
temple was built, an image to that God was set up in the temple, and that image became the point of connection, the point of interface between the worshiper and the deity who was said to reside in that temple. And that's exactly the way the the ancient Israelites would have understood the creation account. You have God building his dwelling place in this creation, and the last thing that he constructs is his image, who becomes the point of interface between him and the creation that he inhabits. It's a temple scene with an image scene. It's our modern age that wants to turn it into a non-scientific explanation of where everything came from. But that's not the way the ancient Israelites would have understood it. So temples and images were the way in which deity made itself manifest. And though the psalmists understood and say, and obviously the Israelites understood and say, that God fills all of creation. He does not dwell in a certain building, right? I mean, how does Isaiah end? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you're going to build for me? Where's my dwelling place to be? Can you build a place that I will dwell within? And yet, God said, build me a sanctuary that I might dwell in your midst. So this, this ancient way of thinking about how deity is present and accessible in the world, God himself accommodated himself to that. Because of this principle of, if you will, sacred space, holy place, consecrated place, Sacred space recognizes the inherent distinction between the divine and the natural and the need to bridge that chasm. If the divine is to be discernibly present in and accessible within the natural realm, there needs to be some sort of interface, some way for that deity to be manifest. And so it is with God. Temples and sanctuaries then, people discern that kind of distinction between me and the gods that are out there, that are not like me, at least not in the ultimate sense. And so they recognize the need to have an intersecting point, as it were, between the natural and the spiritual realm. A place where human beings can encounter the divine and interact with the divine. That's what temples were all about. And God continued in his own relationship with the world. He drew on that same idea and really for the same reason. He is spirit. He is holy other. He can only be encountered through some conjunction of his space, if you will, his realm and the natural realm some kind of interface, whether a physical location, a physical structure, some other sort of accommodation to the natural realm. The phenomenon of the burning bush, the phenomenon on Mount Sinai, a bush that is burning supernaturally. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. The hearing of a voice God has to accommodate himself to our naturalness, to our sensory quality as human beings. Otherwise, we would be unaware of him. So whether it's through angelic appearances, whether it's through a voice, whether it's through you know, some sort of, of physical phenomenon, an earthquake, or whatever it happens to be, there has to be that point of interface. And that's what Israel's sanctuary represented in the way that it was constructed, in the furnishings of it, and even the way that the colors and the patterns were woven into the linens. It all was symbolic and spoke of this conjunction between God's space and the earth space. And the psalmist spoke that way. 
They spoke of God who's enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. Heaven is his throne, but the Ark of the Covenant in the, whole, in the sacred space, in the Holy of Holies, is the footstool of his feet. The temple, the tabernacle, and later the temple were the place where heaven and earth came together. And ultimately, as we saw particularly through the Gospel of John, that sort of temple idea and imagery is crucial to John's presentation of Jesus and his understanding of Jesus as the fulfillment of the temple motif. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. Not the Shekinah in the Holy of Holies, his glory. The glory as of the only God, right? No one has seen God at any time. God, the only son, the begotten one, he has exegeted him. Jesus as the fulfillment of sacred space. Jesus as that place, that realm where heaven and earth come together. So that's the idea behind the focus of these psalms on the sanctuary. It's not about a building that they love or, you know, how ordained or uh, ornate it is or, or, or glorious this structure is. It's about this is where God is encountered. So in terms of some particulars, and I just want to treat this under three kind of general things in the movement of the psalm itself. It begins with the psalmist proclaiming his delight in Yahweh's sanctuary. How lovely are your dwelling places. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, Yahweh Siva Oath, that title, Lord of hosts, conveys the idea of the God of power and might, the God of armies, the hosts, the hosts of heaven and ultimately even the hosts of Israel. God is the one who commands the hosts of heaven. He commands the hosts of Israel. It's a statement of power or might or triumph, a God who is effectually able to accomplish what he intends, what he desires even to provide for the well-being, the provision of his creation and his people. So he, re- he refers to him as the Lord of hosts, but he says, how lovely are your dwelling places. Lovely in the sense of worthy of desire, worthy of devotion. His dwelling place is worthy of devotion. It's worthy of our desire and our longing, he says but because it's the dwelling of the Lord of hosts. My soul long even yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. You have a threefold parallelism there flowing out. How lovely are your dwelling places. My soul longed and yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now, the NAS in verse 2 says, my soul longed and even yearned, which can give us the idea of a past tense. Okay, that was how it was, right? A past tense sort of idea. But that's not really the idea. The, the Hebrew grammar is expecting the idea of a, it, it's conveying the idea of an established pattern of life. If you're a grammarian, it's called a nomic perfective, a, a habitual sort of, state or status or place. The idea would be this. My soul ever longs. Yea, it's consumed. My soul ever longs. Yea, it's consumed out of a a, a longing for the courts of my Lord, a devotion to the courts of Yahweh. The courts referring to the sanctuary, right? The realm, the habitation in which God resides. My soul ever longs, yea, much more, it is actually consumed with your courts. And he has these other points of parallelism where he, he again, talks about the dwelling places in terms of the courts of God, these various spaces associated with his dwelling 
dwelling places and courts, but also more importantly, he associates in this parallelism the dwelling place, the physical realm with God himself. My soul has longed, it's consumed with your courts. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. It's not about the place, it's about the person of the place, the God of the place. His delight in Yahweh's sanctuary is his delight in God himself. The value, the desirability, the beauty, the loveliness that he ascribes to God's dwelling is because that's where the Lord of hosts himself resides. And the second piece then flowing out of this, verses 3 down through 7, is in view of that loveliness, in view of that longing, in view of his very soul being consumed with God's dwelling place, he has this longing to dwell with him, a longing to be with him. And he uses two images to express it. One is kind of metaphorical. The other is something that would have been a part of just his own observation. The first one is he notes the birds that are building their nests within the sanctuary structure. He takes note of them. And he says, the bird has found a house, yea, even the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Where is that place, even your altars, O Lord of hosts? He looks and he sees these birds, and though they're insignificant, insignificant compared with human beings, and in a funny way, unaware of the glory of the place where they have built their nest. Nonetheless, they experience, he says, the blessedness of closeness to their creator. As they live out in his presence, their existence as he appointed it for them. He looks at them as they built their nest and he sees them flying and coming and going and caring for their young. And he says, isn't that amazing? They don't even understand the glory. They don't understand the significance of this. And yet there's a kind of celebration. There's a kind of delightfulness that they experience in carrying out their lives, living out their ordained existence as birds in God's presence. And I think he's even thinking that way when he says in verse 4, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. If you would have been there seeing that scene, these little birds flying, coming and going, chattering, you know, constantly chirping, making their noise. We have little birds that nest in our birdhouses in back, and they're never quiet. They're always making noise. They're always singing. They're always... They're always, you know, vocalizing. And you can see the, you know, in a sense, the delight that they have in just, just carrying out the lives that God has appointed for them. And I think he's even, in a sense, alluding to that when he says, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. Even the birds, they are ever praising you. Well, what's the point? How much more ought that to be the case with the creature that God created in his own image and likeness? Jesus drew on the same sort of imagery in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Behold the birds of the air. Look how they live their lives. Observe them. They don't toil. They don't labor. They don't lay away in barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. You see this throughout the Psalms. He opens his hands to his creatures. They're satisfied with the good that he gives them. Their desires are fully satisfied. They praise him by simply carrying out the existence for which he created them. Jesus said, the birds of the air, they don't sow, reap, they don't gather in barns. Your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Will not your heavenly father take care of you? So the psalmist is expressing his own longing to be in in the place where God dwells by, by almost jealously noting the birds. They're not limited by a courtyard or a fence or defined access. They, they, they just fly in and they can even make their, their nest in the very altars 
you know, the brazen altar or the laver, the things that were accessible to them. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. And as it is for the birds, so even for the humans who would dwell in God's presence with their hearts and lives fully devoted to him in that way, they would find their all-sufficient strength, their all-sufficient provision. So that's the first image that the writer draws from in expressing his longing. The second is, is uh, drawn from the imagery of Israel's festal celebrations. This is recognized by a lot of commentators as a pilgrimage psalm. There are those who even say that the Israelites would tend to recite or sing this psalm as a part of their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You remember when God uh, established his covenant with Israel, the law of Moses, he prescribed three times a year that every Israelite, if they were able, every Israelite was required to go up to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because that's where he was going to put his name. That's where he was going to be encountered. That's where he was to be found. And every Israelite was to go up to Jerusalem three times a year. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Fifty days later, Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And then the third was in the fall, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And often, because of the distances they traveled, the Jews would stay in Jerusalem for that 50 days, if they could, between Passover and Pentecost. Initially, in the early centuries, these Israelites would travel up to Jerusalem from within Canaan. Later, after the exiles, they came from farther away, from Mesopotamia, from Syria, from the regions in which, you know, they had been dispersed in the diaspora with the exiles. And eventually, by the time of the first century, they came from the full boundaries of the Roman Empire. This is what you see in Acts 2 at Pentecost, right? When they hear the apostles the speaking in these languages and they look at each other and they say they're speaking in the languages where we've come from, Parthians, Medes, from all over the Roman Empire, Jews and proselytes to Judaism who've come to Jerusalem. This is Pentecost. That was one of their pilgrimages. So they're coming a long way. And the point of that is to say that even if it was just through the land of Israel at that time and given the mode of transportation and all of the logistics, that sort of a trip was an arduous trip. Those pilgrimages were not easy. They didn't hop in their car, flip on the air conditioning, drive 100 miles listening to music on the radio. For the most part, they walked. And it was hot and it was dusty, and you had to take food with you. And it was dangerous. There were bandits on the road. There were all kinds of things that were a threat to you. It was an arduous process. But the point that the psalmist is drawing from here is that it was filled with joy because they were worshipers going up to Mount Zion to worship the king, the, the, the king of Israel, the God of Israel. As his covenant children, this was all about converging at the place of his habitation to be with him, to worship him. That's why in his expression in Psalm 84, the highways of Zion, the highways to Zion were in their heart. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you. What does that mean? In whose heart are the highways to Zion? It's pilgrimage language. It's coming to meet the Lord. In their hearts is this pilgrimage to Zion, this desire to go and to be with the Lord. And his language alludes to the actual circumstance of Israel's annual uh, uh, pilgrimages, these three feasts in which they were to go up to Jerusalem, but ultimately, I think, with a view to the spiritual counterpart. 
He says, how blessed is the man whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. All who appear before God in Zion. And this valley of Baca, it has a kind of symbolic significance. Um, Baca, uh, some versions may even say balsam trees. They were kind of a, a weeping tree. They tended to give off uh, a, a kind of sap or, or uh, um, something that they would, you know, uh, emit from, from their leaves, from the tree itself. But Baca, therefore, also comes to mean the idea of gloom or sorrow or weeping. So he's saying this, though they pass through the valley of Baca, a low place of gloom and tears, the worshippers ascent to Zion to appear before Yahweh transforms their tears into a spring of blessings in which they go from strength to strength. That itself is important. It's a reversal of norm. You would start out on your journey well-resourced, rested, plenty of food, take your water. But as the journey went on, you got more and more tired, more and more exhausted, more and more hungry. He says this passing through the valley of gloom and tears because of their hearts being bound to the highways to Zion, because this is about going up to worship the Lord, that Difficulty and tears becomes a spring, a spring of blessing that actually causes them to not become less strengthened as they go on, but more strengthened, to go from strength unto strength, a reversal of what you would expect it to be. And there's huge spiritual significance in this. Franz Dalich says the most gloomy present becomes bright to them. Passing through even a terrible wilderness, they turn it into a place of springs. Their joyous hope and the infinite beauty of the goal, which is worth any amount of toil and trouble, afford them enlivening comfort, refreshing, strengthening in the midst of the barren steppe the barren valley, the barren wilderness. Even in the things that we've considered today, this thing of rest and seeking the Lord's settledness, the Lord's provision. So the psalmists are drawing from Israel's very real pilgrimages that they were all familiar with. But he's drawing out a larger spiritual significance of it. The pilgrimage of life. Which is passage through a valley of gloom and tears. That because of the longing of it, because of the object of longing, because the highways to Zion, the highways to God's dwelling place are in our hearts. It's transformed into springs of blessing that transport us from strength to strength. And it's in light of that hope, that sure hope, that fervent longing that the writer then thirdly cries out to God. O Lord God of hosts, God of armies, God of might, God of effectual power, hear my prayer. O Lord God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of of armies, give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He calls upon the God of heaven to answer his longing to be with him, to come to him. And interestingly, he connects it with God's favor towards his anointed. 
his Mashiach. Now, I'm not saying that the psalmist specifically was referring to the Messiah, but I think that there is an implication of that in this. But that plea has caused a lot of different views of when this psalm was penned, who exactly is in mind here in this petition of the psalmist. And some say that this was probably penned during Judah's exile. And so the longing is that God will again bring us back to Zion, that he will bring us back to Jerusalem. Now that's certainly possible, but the language here seems to suggest that that God's sanctuary was still standing at this time. If he can observe the birds that are making their nests on the altars, there's at least the suggestion that, that the temple or God's sanctuary was standing at this time. And it could be that this would be penned after 516 when the, BC when the second temple was built. There are those who hold that view. The second temple has been built. But as we know, even from Zechariah, right, when we went through Zechariah, Yahweh did not return to that dwelling place. The temple was rebuilt, but Yahweh wasn't there. And that could be a possible interpretation of this. There are others that hold that this reference to the anointed refers to, because it it has a kind of regal significance, priestly or regal or person anointed for a particular task. But David was uniquely Yahweh's anointed. And there are those who say that's what's in view here. So this is penned during David's reign. And a common view is that it probably is referring to the time when under Absalom's rebellion, David was driven from Jerusalem. And there was the longing on the part of the psalmist for David to be restored to his throne, for God's favor to shine back on his kingdom and his people again by restoring the rightful king and again bringing order and settledness to David's kingdom. That's another common view. Another view, uh, kind of related to the exile thing, um, but, but, but back before that, is that this would have been penned during the era of the divided kingdom. Remember, after David died, God held the kingdom together during the reign of his son, Solomon. Solomon built the temple. Then the kingdom was divided under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And now you had the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. David's kingdom was reduced to Judah and Benjamin. With the the Davidic king on the throne in Jerusalem. And then you had the ten tribes in the north with their own king, with their own priesthood, with their own worship system. A divided kingdom. It was during that time that the writing prophets emerged, what we see as the prophets in the scriptures, talking about that event, that significance, and God's intent, his promise, his pledge to pull it all back together again. In other words, to restore David's house and throne and kingdom as he promised to David. And I personally think that's the best context in which to situate this for various reasons. But wherever we want to put it, whatever's the specific historical circumstance, it's clear that the writer has a large vision in mind. It's not just, I just want to go up to Jerusalem. The temple is there. You know, we're all going up. This is Passover. We're going up to the city for that. His desire to go up to Zion spoke of his longing for the day when there would be this restoration, when there would be a gathering to God connected with his favor towards his anointed. And even if you say that anointed in this context is David, ultimately God's favor towards David was to be realized in the exaltation of David's greater son. God's favor towards David was ultimately towards the greater son, the Messiah himself, the one in whom God would restore and perpetuate forever David's house and throne and kingdom. So this plea to extend favor, look with favor, set your eyes with favor on your anointed. 
that we might find ourselves coming to Zion, that we might find ourselves meeting with you in this way. That's a kind of forward-looking, not entirely symbolic, but forward-looking sort of perspective in the penning of this psalm. And I think you see it expressed even again in the symbolism of verses 6 and 7. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain rain covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. That was not an Israelite's experience going up to Jerusalem year by year. It's poetic language that speaks of another sort of journey that doesn't work in the normal way. A glorious sort of journey. You see it also, I think, in the twin parallelisms that are in verse 10. A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. Well, what do you mean? I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The psalmist is, at least in verse 10, he's using the language of God's dwelling place to talk about two different ways that people can settle their existence that they can establish themselves. This, this second piece of verse 10, then dwell in the tents of the wickedness. This doesn't mean taking up your residence or, or building your house there or whatever. It's talking about the circle of life. This pattern from birth to death. In other words, this dwelling idea refers to the substance of one's life, the circle of life the orientation of one's life. So these two dwelling places that he mentions here are the two possibilities where people can build the circle of their life. They can dwell with Yahweh in his dwelling or they can dwell outside with those who are estranged from him. When he says the wicked, he's not talking about people who behave badly per se. He's talking about those who don't know his God. Who remain estranged from him. The goyim, the Gentiles. The people who God has left to their own. The people who are not a part of his covenant household. And so he says there are two places that one can dwell. A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. Indeed, to even stand at the threshold of the house of my God is better than to build the circle of my life in the tents of wickedness. To build the circle of my life in the realm that you aren't there. The realm where people don't know you. And verses 11 and 12, I think, kind of put a sharper point on this, where he says that those who make their dwelling with Yahweh are those who walk uprightly and trust in him. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. So in closing then, the psalmist, it seems to me, is constructing his imagery with a view to his longing for the ultimate day of final pilgrimage. Wherever you situate this, the sons of Korah did not begin to do this ministration of the tabernacle till David was king. And it continued on at least through the time of Jehoshaphat in the ninth century. So, This is certainly in the context of David's kingship, if not after David's death. And my point in saying that is that the sons of Korah, this psalmist here, recognize the promise of God to David for the future. An ultimate pilgrimage, if you will, the day when God's covenant children would be gathered back to him and abide in his house forever. God's promise to David. And in that day, God's image children would be like the little birds that build their nests and take refuge in God's dwelling place. They, like those birds, would flourish in his presence. They would flourish with all satisfaction, all security, living out their lives according to his wise and glorious design. The psalmist says, for Yahweh, who is God, he is a sun, he is a shield, 
He gives favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, those who walk before him. Those in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. O Yahweh, commander of the hosts of heaven and the armies of Israel, how blessed is the one who entrusts himself to you. And if that is indeed what the writer has in mind, then I think the messianic significance of this becomes very, very clear. As he looked to the future, he looked to the day as he spoke and he cried out to God, fulfill this longing of mine, fulfill my desire to be with you in your dwelling place. He's looking to that future day when God will establish his kingdom finally and everlastingly. Even if David is the referent here, the favor upon David, looking, turning your face with favor to the anointed, to your king, would ultimately be realized in connection with the Messiah himself. It's a longing for the day when Yahweh, through the triumph of David's kingship in his descendant, would become king of Israel in truth, and therefore king of all the earth. So whether the psalmist saw David as exiled from the city, whether David had died, whether he saw the divided kingdom, whether he saw the destruction of the temple, whether he saw the houses of Israel in, in exile and the whole kingdom in tatters, in the end, he was looking to that day when Yahweh would fulfill his promise to establish his kingdom, David's house, throne, and kingdom. And my point in this is that what the psalmist was consumed with looking to the future, we experience. What he was longing for, what he was looking through, like a, looking through a fog dimly, we are the ones who experience. We are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come, Right? We are the recipients of that for which he was consumed in his affections, in his longing. But importantly, we don't experience it in the way that he expected. He was longing for the day, probably conceived as Yahweh Shekinah returning back to his temple. He was longing for the day when God would again return and take his place in the midst of his people. Yes, in connection with the son of David. Yes, in connection with that triumph over the uh, opposing forces, over those things that have subjugated God's people. But he never would have imagined the way in which that was to be realized. It wouldn't be Yahweh Shekinah returning to his temple. It would be the sons and daughters themselves becoming Yahweh's sanctuary. The dwelling of the living God. The psalmist wanted nothing more than to be forever in the Lord's presence and to see his relationship with Israel's covenant God consummated in an intimacy of perfect love and perfect devotion, but he could not begin to imagine the way that would actually be realized. In Jesus, in the son of David, in the one in whom God's face is turned with favor upon his anointed David. In Jesus, we enjoy the communion that the psalmist anticipated, but not because we're in the presence of God in some place, not even just because we're reconciled to him through the deliverance that's come in Jesus and this God who's up there in heaven isn't mad at us any longer. We are the ones who enjoy the communion, the intimacy that the psalmist longed for as those that are taken up in the very life and love of God by being sharers in the resurrected life of the Messiah who is the embodiment of Yahweh, the faithfulness of the God who's returned to Zion as he promised we possess what the psalmist could never imagine. So here's my question. I'm sure a convicting question. It is for me. 
the psalmist says, I am consumed with longing for your courts. I am consumed with longing to be with you. We possess that intimacy in a way he couldn't have even imagined. I and you, you and me. Are we consumed in the way the psalmist was consumed? And I would actually say our longing, our consumption with this communion with God should transcend the psalmist to the extent that that communion that we enjoy transcended what he expected, what he knew. He longed to be in Jerusalem where God could be encountered in connection with his dwelling place. We encounter God in the Messiah who is the dwelling of God such that we are stones in his very sanctuary. Do we have a delight that transcends the psalmist? Do we even have a delight that matches his? Can we say, how lovely are your dwelling place? How desirable, how much they're this object of my longing. My soul has longed, yea, even more, it's consumed with the dwelling of my God. Do we even have a desire that matches his? Can we even own his words? If we don't, then we are falling short in our hearts and our minds of the truth of who we are if we're Christians. There's a disconnect between the truth of who we actually are as sons and daughters and where our hearts and minds ought to be in their joy, in their preoccupation, in their consumption. We're distracted by so many things. We're we're despairing and discouraged by so many things. We're preoccupied with so many things. The psalmist had things that distracted him in his life, too. He had difficulties, more difficulties than we have. We throw something in the microwave and we eat in two minutes and their lives were consumed with trying to stay alive, right? And life was short and and hard. And you buried your children and you buried your spouses and, and, you know, that was the way life was. And he says, my heart is consumed with God's dwelling places. We need to be, this is really how we ought to be in terms of our involvement with the scripture. We ought to be people who are coming to the scripture constantly, pleading with God to fill our hearts with the glory that the psalmist saw, to find revealed and disclosed and impressed upon us the glory of God that is in the face of Christ. We need to be coming to the scriptures, pleading with the spirit to form and to perfect the life and the likeness of Christ in us and to fill us with the delight and the joy that were his. Jesus said, the joy that I have, the peace that I have, the world doesn't know. That's what I give to you. We need to be seeking, striving to have our minds, our meditations, our hearts bound over to this same kind of delight and consuming joy that marked the psalmist. It's really what Paul meant when he said, as living sacrifices, those who in our, the totality of our beings, the circle of our existence, is given over as a sacrifice to God in Christ, we ought to be those who are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. This is what it means for us to be pressing one another to grow up in Christ, Right? It's not mastering doctrinal information. It's not getting our behavior right. It's not showing up at a thing called church every week. It's about living into and growing up in this truth of the communion that we have with God in Christ. We are the dwelling of God in the spirit, individually and collectively. Why doesn't it reflect itself in our joy, in our longing, in what consumes us? Why? because we don't understand that, or there's a disconnect between our understanding and the lives we live. How lovely are your dwelling places, our triumphal Lord of hosts. 
Father, I pray that you would help us in these things. This is a convicting message, but it ought to be joyously convicting. It's a call to be who we are. It's a call to recognize the unfathomable glory of the fulfillment of your promise to be in the midst of your people. Something that your faithful Israelite people could never even imagine. They expected a day of return. They expected a day of forgiveness. They expected a day of covenant renewal. They expected a day when you would establish your kingdom anew. And the light of the knowledge of your glory would begin to go out until it would fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. But they had no idea how this would all be bound up in the Messiah himself. That all of the fullness of your glory would be manifest in his face. And that that same glory would be reflected in the face of your people as they are taken up in your life and in your love by sharing in him. The intimacy that we enjoy as sons and daughters is so vastly beyond anything that we know in this life. And sadly, I think it's vastly beyond much of what we really want. We want a God available to us. We want a God who's a resource in our time of need. But otherwise, we want to live our lives. We want to pursue our interests. We want to be about the things that preoccupy us day to day, knowing that we have a God that we can call on. But Father, it is so true. Because of your kindness and your mercy, when we were dead, you made us alive together with Christ. You've raised us up in him and seated us in the place of your habitation in him. Far above all rule and power and dominion and every name that is named, we are together the fullness of the one who fills all in all. Flood our hearts with this. Let it drive our affections. Let it drive our longing. Let it drive the way we think. Let it drive the way we live. Let it drive the way we pray. Let it drive the way we study and read and meditate. Let it drive the way we live out all of the pieces of our life. Let it form the circle of our life that we would truly be and bear the fragrance of Christ, that he would be exalted in the church and in the world and unto the ages. Amen.